Ephesians chapter 4 this evening. What to say is very tempting given the events of yesterday morning to interrupt our study on the Holy Spirit and talk about what happened. I thought about that and honestly the emotions are too jumbled in many different directions and I think that the best thing to do is not to try to answer as Jesus was asked about those on whom the Tower of Siloam had fallen, those, the Galileans whose blood was mixed by Pilate with his pagan sacrifice, we don't understand the providence of God. And this past week, and what we heard again this morning of Josiah's brother, um, it's, just, it's just stunning in, in a... In a, in a very emotional way, the, the loss of life of these young people. And we trust in God's providence. And it, 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 my conclusion was um, we, we need to continue not only to talk about the Holy Spirit, but um, to seek Him and to seek to understand how He works in us as individual believers, but also, and, and the, more importantly to the focus of this entire study, how he works in us as a body of believers, a corporate church, not only at Fellowship Bible Church here on Buist Avenue, but uh, as we have seen and felt the, the unity that we have with believers who are not part of our congregation, and yet we are united in Christ. And so we're going to be looking at the passage that has kind of become our, our home base over the last few weeks of this study. I commended it to you last week as as perhaps, uh, though it's not considered the most important passage by writers on the charismata, the spiritual gifts, I believe it to be really the, the, the foundational passage from which we go to places like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Ephesians 4 tells us in no uncertain terms what the purpose of the Holy Spirit is in his work within the church. This evening we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let us pray. Our Father, we seek to understand this diversity in unity. It is clear as much as we can understand it that Paul speaks of one body, one body of Christ throughout the ages and throughout the world, 
that is one in Christ. And there is one God, though he exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet we know only one Almighty God. But to each of us, severally, individually, you have given gifts of grace, charismata. And so, Father, we ask to understand not only the the purpose and the nature of these gifts, but our own part, our own contribution, as Paul goes on to say in this very chapter, what our part as a joint, a ligament, what our part as as a member of the body, as a hand, as an ear, as a foot, as an eye, what that part is. But Father, I earnestly pray that you would give us the courage to boldly live out that part as we have been learning in Sunday school that we would not merely hold fast to sound doctrine but we would think and act theologically and that our doctrine would pour out through our lives. And We know, Father, that this is not of our own doing but this is the manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And so we do pray, come Holy Spirit, come and anoint us each one to do the work that you have purposed for us within the body that it might be built up, that it might grow into the unity, into the fullness of the stature that is Jesus Christ, the head and fullness of all. We ask, Father, these things in his name. Amen. This evening, as we conclude our study of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which, as I mentioned several weeks ago, is, is somewhat of a misnomer of the word charismata. The word charismata literally means grace gifts, not the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And yet we know that these gifts given by the Lord Jesus Christ are administered in the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We conclude this discussion, this topic, with um, the tying up of some loose ends. And there are three particular things I hope to discuss. Uh, First of all, the, the, the attitude of Reformed theology, Reformed theologians, and Reformed churches to the charismata over the years. Secondly, the, the relationship between our talents, our personal abilities, our training, and, and even our temperament. The relationship between these things that we would consider perhaps our own personality and the charismata the grace gifts that we are given by the Lord through the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, the path forward. What do we do as a Reformed church, a Reformed reformed oriented church with this whole thing, this whole doctrine of the charismata, the grace gifts? First, let's look at what we have been discussing, the charismata, which I believe is a subject that is devoutly to be ignored within most Reformed churches and most Reformed books. I have here a book by a man by the name of C.R. Vaughan, a 19th century theologian and professor. Um, He was a good friend and and, um, colleague of R.L. Dabney. The title of the book is The Gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, back in the 19th century, he was living in the midst of the, uh, the Wesleyan revival, the Azusa Street movement, and the beginnings of Pentecostalism. 
And so, in other words, this book was written within a time in which, uh, very similar to our own, there were charismatics in the land. There were people, and there were professing believers in whose churches things were happening uh, under the name of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that were considered somewhat unusual. And so you would think a book entitled The Gifts of the Holy Spirit would deal with the scriptural passages from Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and, and the things that were going on back from the 18th century with, with John Wesley himself and then in the 19th century with Azusa Street. But if you look at the table of contents, here's what you get. The sealing of the Spirit, the unction of the Spirit, the witness of the Spirit, the earnest of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, the intercession of the Spirit, the comfort of the Spirit. You'll be hard-pressed to find anything on tongues, interpretation, words of wisdom, prophecy, evangelism, apostleship. They're not treated with at all. Now, what he has to say about these things is excellent. And, and it was, and as you can see by my little tabs, and even more by my highlights and underlines, C.R. Vaughan was an excellent biblical theologian, but would you not agree that the title of the book is somewhat misleading? And yet it's not. It actually is not misleading at all in light of the Reformed response to the gifts of the Holy Spirit from the time just after John Calvin on to our own. And that is, as I said, it is a subject devoutly to be ignored because we all know that if we ignore something, it goes away, right? The emphasis that you'll hear within Reformed teaching with regard to what we call the charismatic movement is that that's not what matters. What matters is the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm sure you've all heard many sermons on the fruit of the Spirit. That's what really matters is the, is the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the forbearance, and all these things. That's what matters. But I don't think even a Reformed theologian, if put to the point, would agree that Paul intended for it to be an either-or situation. That it's either the gifts of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. Certainly, Paul would say it is a both-and and we have not talked about the gifts, I'm sorry, the fruit of the Spirit, because they are actually not within the context of the gifts of the Spirit or the charismata. The fruit of the Spirit, with which the church cannot be without, the, the fruit of the Spirit, in the context of the chapter in which we read them in Galatians chapter 5, have to do with personal justification and sanctification. These are the manifestations of the Holy Spirit within each one of us as believers, as the Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ wash away the old man and bring us into the conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the fruit of the Spirit. But the gifts of the Spirit have to do with the corporate life of the body, the body of Christ in each location and together around the world as as the, the, the living manifestation of Christ on earth. We are dependent upon the charismata. And in all of those chapters we read about the charismata, the grace gifts, the context is not the individual believer. We've made that point many times. This is not about you, not about me. It's not even about what's my gift and what's her gift and what's his gift. That's exactly what was wrong with the believers at Corinth. 
It's about the vibrancy, the vitality, and the growth of the body of Christ. As Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 4, with each joint, each ligament provided, providing to the body that which is, it is supposed to give, the body grows up into Christ. And so it's not an either-or situation between the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. The bottom line is that conservative Reformed theologians are scared of the charismata. We're scared of things getting out of control. We're scared of things happening that we're not used to seeing and we don't know what to do with. We're scared of people within the congregation not just sitting there quietly, or as it should be said, decently and in order, and listening to the sermon. We're scared they might do something that will require us to be flexible. As David, I think, so wisely pointed out, the difference between accommodation and compromise, we, we don't frankly want to compromise, nor do we want to accommodate. And this has been, I think, one of the greatest sins of Reformed theology which in its current state is moribund. It is dead. And that sin is that we have put too much emphasis on the ministry of the Word from the pulpit to the exclusion of the ministry of the Holy Spirit within the body. Not that it is an either-or situation there. It is both and. And when we read in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 14, he says, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you come together, each one has a psalm, has a hymn, has a word, has a prophecy. That's where we read, let everything be done. To the building up of the body, decently and in order, but to the building up of the body. Because Christ has ever intended that his body was not to be nothing more than a mouth, but rather it is a body. And yet, it makes us nervous. And, and I will admit, and as I said last week, I speak from experience. As Angela and I were, were part of the charismatic movement for a number of years back in the 80s, stuff happens. And you don't know what to do with it. And some of it is good, and some of it is not good. And as I mentioned a number of weeks ago, Jonathan Edwards, back in the middle of the, of the 18th century, had to deal with the same thing. And I think Paul was dealing with it in the middle of the first century. Things that were happening within the body of Christ, some of which was good, some of which was not. But I would say that within many Reformed churches, that which is happening is not good. It's sterile. It is nothing but academic dispensation of the Bible and Bible teaching. And there's no life. There's no vibrancy. There's no vitality. I wonder how many, if we, if we could know, how many churches within the Reformed profession have already lost their lampstand, if it would not be very shocking. So what I'm advocating is not that we, we, we go all the way over to the charismatic movement, we bring back you know, the apostleship, you know, Apostle Mark and Apostle Dave and Apostle Chuck. No. I think I've been very clear in, in my believing that the sign gifts belong to the fresh preaching of the gospel of light in realms of utter darkness as the world was in the first century. 
as it is still in many places of the world today. But the gifts of serving and the gifts of speaking belong to each one of us as believers in Jesus Christ. And we need, for the, for the sake of the glory of God through the church of Jesus Christ, we need to, to wake up to this fact. And maybe I should say, as, as leaders within the church, we need to realize that it's not our responsibility to keep everything under control. And sometimes the Lord may lead some things to happen that will make us very uncomfortable. And I am firmly of the opinion, from my reading of history in the church, I am firmly of the opinion that if God should graciously pour out upon us His Holy Spirit in true revival, many of us, including probably myself, are going to be very uncomfortable. Now, I believe that, that I can avoid by the blessing of God and the situation he has placed me, I can avoid many areas of, of discomfort. In other words, I can pretty much stay off ladders. I have a son and a son-in-law who can do it for me. I, I can stay off roller coasters, which I do religiously. You know, can, I can avoid discomfort in many areas, but can we avoid discomfort? Can we avoid feeling nervous about the work of the Holy Spirit in his own church without grieving him and perhaps without causing him to remove his lampstand from our midst. So this is, this is about all y'all. Because we just read the passage, but, you know, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one body, one spirit, but to each one of you, to each one of you, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And you put those two words together, grace and gift, and you get charismata. And as I mentioned a week or so ago, we are all charismatics. If we are in Christ, we are all charismatics. Just as we are all fundamentalists, Though we may not be as the fundamentalists as they're called today or as the charismatics as they're all today, we believe in the fundamentals of the truth of Christian faith. We're fundamentalists. And we can be fundamentalist charismatics, which most people in the world would think is schizophrenic. But it's what the Bible teaches. We hold fast to sound doctrine. We're guided by it, but we're moved by the Holy Spirit which is the gospel that Paul called mine in Romans 16. Mine. My gospel. The gospel, the only gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what does it mean? Well, I used to believe, and for many years believed, that God would not gift us according to natural abilities because he wouldn't want us to boast in our own abilities. Now, now, this view of mine did not come out of Scripture. It actually came out of my reaction to a, to a phase within my Christian life, or at least the church during my years as a believer, in which people were, were, were flaunting their talents as being um, the gifts that God has given them. And, and so a football player or a singer, and many of you remember this. You know, I was playing football for Jesus 
I couldn't, I couldn't quite understand that. How God gifted a man to, to beat up other men over a little ball. I, I just wasn't, it wasn't coming to me, okay? And, and I was thinking that, you know, just like the, the word hero is so misused in our culture. Everybody's a hero now. I remember our cartoon in which uh, there was a statue and a couple of people watching, you know, looking at it. And it was a statue of a plumber. <laughs> and it says, our hero. <laughs> and one of the persons says to the other, I, I think we're misusing that word. You know, the word hero used to mean something. And I, I think that I was, I was feeling like the word talent used to mean something different. And now, you know, if someone is a singer, they're a singer for Christ. If they're a baseball player, they're a baseball player for Christ. And, and this was really all the rage in the 1980s and 90s. And so I guess I kind of reacted and I thought, you know what, I don't think the Lord does that. I think if he's going to gift us, he's going to gift us completely different from our, our natural talents. And then I, I began to realize our natural talents are from the providence of God. We don't have them from any other source but God. And not only our talents, but our temperament and the time of our birth, the age in which we are born. I read passages like, like um, Mordecai saying to Esther, you have been raised up for just such a time as this. And realize that the training and the teaching that we receive is all ordained. Psalm 139. He not only knows the number of our days, he knows the content of those days. He knows whether a man is going to be a Galilean fisherman or a, a rabbi from Tarsus. And so it, it, it is probably the case. Since we have been ordained and given in Christ from before the foundation of the world, and certainly known to the Lord even in our mother's womb, and even which mother's womb we would be in, that all of the circumstances of our life are part of the providential ordering of God of that life. Now, I studied to become a chemical engineer. And now for the last, you know, what, 20 years, I have not done that. I've taught chemistry to high school students. What we, what we learn, Mark studied to be a mechanical engineer. He, teach physics, he teaches physics and math. What we learn and the experiences that we go through and the temperament that God gives us are all part of his having woven us together in the womb in a mysterious and, and wonderful way. Not just our bodies, but our minds and our families and our country and our age are all part of the providence of God. And so I've changed my mind. I know that's shocking to many of you. <laughs> my children are aghast. But actually, I, I have changed my mind that I believe that grace gifts probably do correlate to natural talents. And yet there's still no room to boast. For we are the product of God's sovereign providence. And he not only knows that we are, but he knows who we are and what we are. Because he has made us, not we ourselves. And so where do we look for our charismata? Well, we just look in the mirror. We look within ourselves as to where our mind and our heart goes when things happen around us. 
Are, are you the type that, that, that immediately wants to step in and, and, and clean things up? Are you the type that, that wants to have people over to your house? Are, are you the type that realizes that um, the church's checkbook hasn't been balanced in six months and you just want to do it? Now, these are different gifts that flow out of what your temperament, your training, your talents are. I don't really think it is something that we should take a, a, a modified Myers-Briggs test to find out. Frankly, I think we are probably fairly well aware, each one of us, what our giftedness is. And yet we give God all the glory for having made us in such a way that we might be useful and that really is what it boils down to, that we might be useful to a God who does not need us in order to accomplish his purpose. That, that is really the, the, uh, the wonder of the gospel, that he should consider us not only worthy of salvation, but even more than that, worthy to be co-workers, Worthy to be members of the body. And, and what, one phrase that, that we read in Paul's, I think it's in Colossians, perhaps it's in Ephesians. No, it's in Ephesians chapter 1. And I've always marveled every time I read this. Paul says that he put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Have you ever meditated on that? That we are the fullness of the one who fills all in all. And only by the grace and mercy of God. That we have been granted to be instruments, to be members of the glorious body of Christ. That, that, that in itself is very humbling. And so there's really no room for boasting in talents anymore than there was in Corinth for boasting in gifts. It's all grace, which is unmerited favor. All of it. As we read there again in Ephesians 4, to each one grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The grace gift, the charismata. The doctrines of grace are incomplete without the charismata. In other words, Reformed theology is empty. In fact, I would say it's dead without a functioning theology of the working of the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ. Now, I mentioned earlier that Reformed theology has run scared and has run away from this teaching from just after the time of Calvin and to our own day. And I mentioned that specifically because, remarkably, John Calvin didn't. And he wrote and preached many things on what we've talked about. Now, he also did not believe that the sign gifts, the gifts of the, the signs of the apostle, he did not believe they were still in force. But he did not discount their possibility of happening in foreign fields where the, where the gospel had not yet gone. And yet he spoke volumes about the speaking and the serving ministry. And some historians of the church and of the Reformation have called him the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've ever seen his picture, you wouldn't. You know, it's kind of like Jonathan Edwards. You know, it looks like a pickle <laughs> with a hat. 
and yet the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Do you see, something like that tells me that we're on the right track, that the doctrines of grace and the gifts of grace were never meant to be separated, and that within the Reformed communion is the best place to see the proper operating of the Holy Spirit. Because those who call themselves charismatic have left sound doctrine. And so they, they can't be right. But those who call themselves reformed have left the Holy Spirit. And they can't be right either. And so we need to bring them back together in our own thinking, in our own prayers, and in our own individual life within this body. If it goes no further, at least let it be here while we pray that it goes much further in true revival. Grace is never static. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about us being gifted with grace upon grace. Grace in exchange for grace. Paul is told that, his, that the Lord's grace will be sufficient for whatever need Paul encounters. And that is true for all of us. And as we grow in Christ, just as we grow in our physical life, our responsibilities and our influences expand, so also the grace of God expands. It is dynamic. It is not static. And so we are called always to be growing in grace. As we are growing in knowledge, we are growing in grace. And I think that the, the practical outworking of that is that we are maturing in our gifts. They're not static either. We should always be improving and working on and stirring up, as Paul says to Timothy, the gift or the gifts that Christ has blessed each one of us with. I'm not even so sure that the number of gifts is static. But it is dynamic. And again, going back to Ephesians 4, the goal of all of this, we read in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, there's that oneness again, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the full measure or the measure of the statue, stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We are not there yet. We have not attained Reformed congregations have not attained to this fullness of Christ. Because the fullness of Christ unites the Word and the Spirit and does not separate them. One famous phrase from the Reformation, the source of which is unknown, it is not as well known as the five solas, and sadly it has fallen into almost obscurity. But that phrase is Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. Now there's an addition to it that I'll give you in a moment, but it literally means a reformed church is always being reformed. If we're truly reformed, which was a phrase I heard ad nauseum in seminary, if we're truly reformed, then we're always being reformed. That does not mean that 
We're constantly changing things. It doesn't mean that we're looking for novelties or coming up with new ideas and new programs. What it means is that the Word of God, and that's the latter part of the phrase, according to the voice of God in His Word. We are always being reformed. It's passive. It's happening by the working of the Holy Spirit. If we are not being reformed, if we are not constantly letting the water of the Word of God wash us in our minds, in our hearts, and in our hands, the things that we do, then we're not truly reformed. If we settle into a certain doctrine and imitate a certain age that we consider to be the golden age of reformed theology, the, 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 the Dutch Calvinists or the English Puritans or Geneva, and all of these things I have seen set up as idols. Oh, we follow this confession, or we follow that confession. When, whenever we settle on our knees that way, we're no longer reformed. We've given over the title. Just as the charismatic who ignores sound doctrine is not truly charismatic, because the Holy Spirit does not speak on his own accord, but rather speaks only that which Jesus tells him to speak, just as the charismatic has given up the, the right and title to that name, so has the reformed theologian who has settled in his doctrine and has ceased being reformed. That is really the conclusion of the matter. We, we need to continually be reformed in our own lives and in our church. Nothing that we do should be considered beyond the scrutiny of God's Word. Nothing that we do should be held so fast that we should not change it in an instant once we are convinced by God's Word that it needs to be changed. Nothing that we are not doing should we consider verboten, should we consider taboo, as soon as we're convinced by the Word of God that we ought to be doing it. And frankly, Nothing should scare us. So long as we are firmly rooted in God's word, we need not fear that we will be deceived. Let us pray. Father, we earnestly ask that this would be a congregation under reformation. Not that we would be, as the past tense, reformed, but that we would be known as a congregation being reformed. And not by our own novelties and ideas, but rather by the washing of the water of the word. And Father, we pray this for the entire church. We pray this for all congregations, reformed, fundamentalists, charismatic. Father, these are populated by your people. And we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon your people. And that you would reform even the reformed churches. That you would reform the fundamentalist churches that they would give up their idol of free will, give up their idol of works righteousness, and embrace the sovereignty of God, that mystery, that you would reform the charismatic churches, that they would embrace sound doctrine, allow themselves once again to be taught sound biblical doctrine, that you would reform your church. Because in that reformation, Father, we believe there is unity, and that is what we desire. There is only one body, one Lord, one baptism, and one Holy Spirit whom we ask to inhabit our hearts and inhabit 
our congregation. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand this evening for the benediction from 2 Peter chapter 3. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.